This is the Annex of Sociology podcast. I'm Dan Morrison from Abilene Christian University. Today, we speak with Beth Pop Berman, Associate Professor in the Department of Organization Studies at the University of Michigan. Beth is the author of a new book, Thinking Like an Economist, How Efficiency Replaced Equality in U.S. Public Policy, just out from Princeton University Press. She's also author of Creating the Market University, How Academic Science Became an Economic Engine in 2012, also from Princeton University Press. Beth is here to discuss her account of how policymaking was captured by what she calls an economic style of thinking and its implications for public life, values, and democracy. Welcome back to the Annex, Beth. Thanks, Dan. It's uh, great to be back with you, uh, talking to you today. Uh, your book, Thinking Like an Economist, tells a really important story, but also contributes a critical missing piece to the analysis of neoliberalism. So I want to probably start there because to me, there's a lot of conversation from a lot of scholars, a lot of different places, talking about neoliberalism in many in many different ways, a bunch of arguments about how to define that term and so forth. So as I just said, many have argued about what neoliberalism is and how it emerged. So before we get into the narrative of how the economic style of thinking came to dominate policy, how does your book advance our analysis of neoliberalism? What, what pieces to add to that conversation? Yeah, I mean, so I think maybe one place to start is that I, I hardly use the word neoliberalism at all in the book, which is which is intentional, but it's very much, very much motivated by this question, right, of the rise of neoliberalism and how do we understand and think about that and explain it. And, you know, and the reason that I, I, I don't talk about it, why I don't talk about it in that language is really twofold. One piece of it is that I think once you frame a particular piece of work as being about neoliberalism, right, you're sort of you're talking to a certain set of people and and you're sort of you know confining your conversation to people who are willing to engage with the concept of neoliberalism and so you know so that was one one reason that i didn't frame it primarily in those terms but definitely that's what the book is about it's telling a different piece of the story right you know we know a lot about conservatism and sort of libertarian thinking and, and sort of that piece of neoliberalism um, within the realm of economics. There's lots of stories about the Chicago School and Mont Pelerin and, and all these things, but we don't have the same kind of depth of accounts of neoliberalism on the left or center left, right, of the, of the political sphere. And, and there's some exceptions to that, like uh, Stephanie Mudge's uh, Leftism Revisited is a major book that does deal with neoliberalism of the left. You know, there's a lot of that story that's that's left to be told. And so, um, you know, so what this book is really trying to do is show how a particular way of thinking about policymaking that is tied to, uh, you know, tied to the discipline of economics, but kind of goes beyond it, isn't really confined to that, you know, it was really incorporated into policymaking in all these different, in all these different locations and all these different ways, and how that ended up having political consequences. And, you know, and I think it's both a story that really emphasizes actors who were on the center left, you know, but who were critical in advancing what, you know, we could think of as, as neoliberal ideas about sort of the importance of markets, you know, the, the usefulness of markets as a way of coordinated action about how government relates to markets. And it's also a book that's about how some of this change came from the state itself, that a lot of the immediate source of, of push for the expansion of these sort of centrist neoliberal ideas came in reaction to a big expansion of government that took place in the great society in the years that that followed that. And so so there's a big way in which this kind of neoliberalism, you know, not only emerged in reaction to the expansion of the state, but really emerged in the state itself. And I think both of those are, are pieces of this, you know, pieces of the big neoliberalism story, which has been told a lot that really haven't been examined very closely. So instead of thinking about like the neoliberals as insurgents that are are fighting against the state or you know, so-called big government's influence uh, in multiple spheres of life, from the family to the economy to the workplace, you know, environmental regulations, other areas, being on the side of unions, for example, other other sorts of things that might might get in the way of one-to-one contracting or you know, so-called freedom of choice and and those sorts of things. Your book really shows how insiders within the government used systems of budgeting and planning to maximize efficiency as as the main goal of public policy, you know, favoring again things like values like freedom and gets and and choice over regulations that were, you know, sometimes 
well, ambitious, but that pushed companies and say polluters, other organizations to develop responses versus doing a more, what we would consider kind of normal today, kind of a balancing approach of costs and benefits in any one regulation. Well, maybe we should back up a little bit and, and just have you uh, define this economic, economic style of thinking and how, how was that economic style different than what came before in, in public policymaking? Yeah, I mean, so what I talk about is as this economic style of reasoning is basically it's kind of a microeconomics 101 way of thinking about policy problems. So it's a loose toolkit of of concepts, things like, you know, incentives, choice, efficiency, trade-offs, thinking at the margin, this sort of basic approach to thinking about policy problems that tends to you know, if not idealized markets, it certainly values markets as as an important way of distributing resources and, and values the market, the market mechanism in general. Um, and that's really that really trying to center efficiency uh, in particular as a goal of good policymaking and that efficiency can take various forms, you know, but the, but the idea is good policy is policy that is efficient, that is cost effective. You know, if we want to think about how government should be should be regulating markets, you know, you want to try to create markets that are going to, regulations that are going to make those markets work as efficiently as possible. And that, so that's kind of the first order definition here. I did, your, your book <laughs> does talk about this, this microeconomic thinking and the way that so many uh, government officials and lawyers that often staff these agencies were trained in microeconomics with examples from, you know, mainstream microeconomic textbooks that kind of reduce businesses to lemonade stands and other kind of very, let's say, small scale operations. When in fact, you know, we're talking about government offices and bureaucracies that regulate, you know, just huge industries industries that had been organized and under one set of like government regulations and market conditions for a very long time. I mean, transportation, railways, trucking, airlines, uh, those sorts of things that uh, in your in your telling were mostly quite comfortable with the regulatory environment that they lived in before the rise of the economic um, style of reasoning in policy making because that regime uh, of thinking provided a lot of stability, right? And one thing that businesses often don't like actually is wild changes and or significant changes, dramatic changes in how they are uh, regulated. Not only because those regulations uh, protected or at least limited the entry of new of new firms, but also you know protected a basic level of profits that would not be guaranteed under a less restrictive you know regulatory environment. It's fast. I mean, it's, it's fascinating because this book tells like the story of our present kind of situation and why when we're talking about policies and debating them are lots of barriers to getting beyond a an economic uh, cost benefit analysis or just the idea of like means testing, for example. So right now. The conversation about limiting or or eliminating the first ten or fifty thousand dollars in student debt. Um, the first response to that is either uh, something like, "Well, other people had to pay debt, so you should too," or, "You know, we certainly wouldn't want to give benefits to anyone who doesn't deserve them or could pay their student loans off." A means-tested benefit is going to be the thing that is. Uh, reached for almost immediately versus a, a more universal program that might be argued for on the basis of values other than just whatever is most efficient in terms of, of dollars and cents. But you argue that the economic style of thinking has diffused throughout regulatory agencies of the federal government, but that it was spurred on by two strands of thought. So first, systems analysts from the RAND Corporation and industrial organizational economics, uh, first centered at Harvard, but increasingly at the University of Chicago. Can you help us understand these two analytic traditions and how this style uh, was a combination or a confluence of those two groups, and then how this idea spread through social welfare policy, uh, economic governance, and social, social regulations? Yeah, I mean, so I think these sort of two sets of people that I kind of follow into and around the world of policy kind of map nicely onto some of what you were just talking about, right, in terms of of the way that they reshape these different questions. So on the one hand, you have this group of guys and 
you know, guys is using the guys intentionally, right? A lot of guys. Uh, right. A lot of guys, not a hundred percent, but many guys who are based at the Rand Corporation, you know, and I think, right, as sociologists, like my thought of the Rand Corporation is like people who do health and education policy, right? But this is like the old school Cold War, very intense defense department or not, yeah, not defense department, but uh, Air Force kind of uh, uh, institution where they were originally, right? They're trying to solve problems of how do we protect the U.S. in the event of a nuclear war? You have a you know interdisciplinary group of people there who are working on this kind of stuff, but they end up developing a, a way of thinking about these problems that really uh, focuses on on cost effectiveness as the way to evaluate these kinds of decisions. And that doesn't have to just mean monetary cost effectiveness, right? But you think of what all the costs and benefits, you think of what your goal is, you know, the different paths you have that might help you to achieve that goal. You know, what are the different kinds of policies that we could take that would get us there? And then you evaluate which of those is going to be most cost effective. Um, and, you know, maybe you have some other constraints going on, but that that's kind of the general orientation to how you should think about problems. And so, you know, so this this originated in the context of things like where should we put our air bases so that we can defend the U.S. Um, and those folks came to the Defense Department with Robert McNamara in 1960. And from there, their ideas were perceived as being very successful in Washington initially. And by 1965, President Johnson was saying, hey, these methods are so great. Let's roll this out across federal government. Let's use this all across the executive branch. And so you have all these different federal agencies, including uh, social policy agencies that start for the first time to create offices that are led by economists and they're sort of centered around an economic way of, of thinking about policy problems, they really start to think about social policy domains in new ways. And so, you know, so you can see this in, in all kinds of big social policy areas in the in the 1960s. But like, for example, one, one place you see this, this new kind of thinking about policy come into conflict with existing ways is in an area like anti-poverty policy. So you've got Johnson's um, you know, Kennedy and then Johnson are launching the war on poverty. And initially, a big piece of it is about community action and the idea that, like, a key piece of solving poverty is you need to have more political participation and kind of empower people to have a political voice and so on. And that's like a very specific way of thinking about how to solve poverty. Um, and then and then you've got this competing economic way of thinking about it, which is, well, this is basically an income problem, right? And so we could just you know, we'll create a negative income tax, you know, we'll, we'll give people cash that will that will solve the problem. And like, they're both ways of thinking about poverty that within their own terms, make a lot of sense. But they're really diagnosing the problem and the solution in quite different ways. Um, and so there were a lot of different spaces like this, right, where, you know, there were kind of existing frameworks for thinking about policy, you know, this economic framework was a was a new and different way of thinking about it. Um, and over time, the you know the economic frameworks were were quite successful re relative to those existing frameworks. Yeah, this the story about you tell it in the book about the Office of Economic Opportunity. You know, originally just this social welfare program originally staffed by social workers and sociologists and people who really did have a theory of uh, social change that was bottom up that was fighting for the yeah. political rights and power of marginalized people that really, I mean, if this had been carried through, and I think some people thought it, it, it might be and, and funded well, right, you'd, you'd actually have a significant challenge to political incumbents. In other words, the Democratic yeah. Party, um, the, the liberal or more, you know, progressive, I guess we would say, um, today party. And you know, one thing political parties sometimes don't like is challenges from below. Right? Yeah, yeah. And, and so the government or bureaucratic apparatus then, you know, shifts towards the economic side of thinking, towards thinking of the problem as an income problem, not only because that might be a, another rational way to do it, but also the, you know, the side benefit, so to speak, is tamping down or limiting the possibilities for progressive, collective, grassroots, mass change in sort of a mass movement at the very same, at the very time, right, when there are other mass movements going on, right? So this is sort of like a, a cultural moment of, of social and political change. And even I think your, your point, your book makes the point that kind of earlier with the dramatic expansion of government in the New Deal, right, there was um, some concern yeah. 
that you know maybe those changes were were too rapid or too expansive, you know, too much regulation, too much protection. In other words, uh, not enough exploitation. <laughs> you could think of it in that in that sense. And so, getting some a handle around how to most effectively spend. Uh, government resources or tax money was also a way to kind of rein in maybe some of those those unintended consequences of those of those policies. I mean, the other thing that I'm remembering from your book is, you know, when these analysts came in and asked like department heads, you know, what is your goal? And it's a literacy program and for adults. And the person who's running the program says, well, our, our goal is to help more adults learn how to read, which honestly, that's a great goal, right? And then, and then the analyst says, well, how do you measure that? When the person says attendance, you know, and I think everyone listening yeah. would say there's a disconnect there between learning to read and seat time. Yeah. And this idea that, 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 you know, that that's how you think about problems, right? Is you, you think about, well, what's the measurable outcome, you know, how do you, and then once you've got a measurable outcome that you're shooting for, you know, how do you sort of systematically evaluate like what the most effective ways are are to get you there. And so like on the one hand, that's a very natural, natural to us right now way of thinking. It was not a natural way of thinking to people who were, you know, in these policy spaces at the at the time. But you know, but it also it has blind spots as well, right? So it is uh on the one hand, you know, I I don't think that you know, certainly I at least would not advocate that just measuring attendance is the best way to decide whether your reading program is doing any good in the world or not, right? But uh, a lot of times, um, the kinds of questions that were being evaluated, you know, they have other kinds of implications, like there are political consequences to them, or there are consequences that aren't being captured in the things that are actually being measured. And I think maybe like one good example of this that kind of overlaps with the one you just you just gave, but that's more contemporary is, you know, you think about a debate like the charter schools debate, right? Where if what you're focused on is, uh, do these schools do a better job of raising the test scores of particular groups of students? You know, maybe you're looking at racialized students or you're looking at students from particular communities. You know, one way to look at that is to say, okay, well, can we just measure, you know, what's the the outcome that we're shooting for is higher test scores? You know, are these cost-effective ways to achieve that goal? Are they doing better than the alternative? And you might say yes, but at the same time, it ignores a lot of other questions about these sort of like political economy questions of, well, okay, that's, you know, certainly an important thing to consider, but what does that, how do we think about that in the context of a larger school system? How do we think of that in the context of political environment where there's a lot of people who want to turn schools into vouchers, right? Like, how do we think about other kinds of consequences that don't fit as neatly within that framework? Right. I think the, that's right. The vouchers and these schools are charter schools that are a good example. And some, you know, some cities have been completely turned their public schools over to charter. I mean, New Orleans is a great, is a great example uh, of this. You know, schools exist not only for test, test scores. But what you're saying is they exist not only for test scores, right? So there's a civic component. There's a social emotional component, right? There's a, a citizenship component and, and narrowing, narrowing the outcome to simply test scores in math and science and reading it doesn't capture all of those things. I mean, I think about Eve Ewing's work in the clo- on um, closing of the schools in, in Chicago and Ghosts in the Schoolyard and just how many purposes those schools served for neighborhoods that weren't really about maybe the number of students served, although mm-hmm. there were more schools, more students in those schools, some of which were closed than in other parts of Chicago, as she, as she outlines in in that in that great book yeah so right so there's just a lot of things that that aren't necessarily captured by it and and you know which is not to say that that at least i would not say that, like the, the that something like test scores isn't one thing that's worth looking at and considering you know so so the argument isn't that oh we should just ignore all this stuff and just kind of say well schools are good and you know never never think about it again but yeah you know the 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 story in the book is that as this became sort of a an indispensable way of framing problems, right? That it became harder to center these other kinds of these other kinds of things that that social policy areas were trying to do, and that you know, and that that had real political consequences in the long run. I mean, I think about this in my own classes when we're trying to make an argument for a sociological perspective on some kind of of outcome, and you know, or even the value of 
of sociology itself as a discipline for people who aren't going to become professional sociologists, for example. Just that, just getting a hearing for the kind yeah. of like critical analytic work that sociologists often do precisely help us think about other kinds of values and other kinds of outcomes that our policies might be getting us, getting us that are not measured um, or not seen worthy of, of measuring. Seems to me to be increasingly difficult. I haven't been at this very long, but for a lot of reasons, one being just the cost of higher education in general, you know, if you're if you're thinking about education as purely a mm-hmm. private good and I'm only here to get a better job, to get more money to pay off my student loans, for example, it's harder to make a non-economic argument about um, the value of studying some fields that don't have a, as clear a path to direct monetary gain. Yeah, yeah, no, I think it's kind of a mixed bag, right? Like, I think there's some areas like higher ed where like you said, it's become harder and harder to articulate the, you know, the value of higher education in alternative ways. And I think partly that's just because, like you said, the cost, the cost keeps going up. And so the more expensive it becomes, you know, the more, you know, the, the more unavoidable it is almost that you're going to have to think about it in terms of, at a minimum, at a minimum you know, am I going to be able to pay this money back in the long run, right? But there's, but there's other spaces where I think other kinds of thinking about problems are on the rise and expanding. And I think about, you know, I think there's a lot of ways in which people are more open to structural explanations now than they used to be. And I think just kind of, I don't know, like the students I see, the awareness of like the idea of like structural racism as a concept, right? That racism isn't just about like attitudes between one person and another person, you know, that there's this history of racism that played out in laws and then affected people's life chances, you know, over the course of generations. And that, you know, that means they're starting out from different places and have different sets of opportunities. Right. So I think ideas like that, at least, I don't know. I I find that students 10 years ago uh, really had to be introduced to that. And now they're kind of already there, right? Like that's not that's not that's not a new idea to them. So I, I do think there's there's spaces where, um, you know, thinking like a sociologist has become more uh, prevalent. That's good. That's good. Um, <laughs> you know, sometimes I fight that structural racism battle, and sometimes I don't. There there are definitely sections of students here that are are already there, and others who still think in in sort of more individualistic terms. But that's why we're here to to help uh, fill in that fill in that picture. I want to I want to talk about this very interesting story you tell about ozone regulation. Now I haven't thought about ozone uh, mm-hmm. a lot until uh, since probably elementary school when I learned that there's a hole in the ozone layer and that we were all responsible uh, because <laughs> we used uh, Aquanet hairspray. Yes, yeah, too much Aquanet. There was a lot of Aquanet in the eighties. It's mo- mostly my grandmother actually, lovely woman, <laughs> but used a lot of Aquanet. So the story you tell. There's this group that analyzes significant regulations in Carter's administration. This is in the, obviously, it's in the late 70s. And they fought the EPA, who had proposed a 0.08 part per million standard for ozone. Now, that's, you know, I'm not an ozone scientist. So that's the standard that they, they wanted. But industry wanted a number three times as high. So this set up a conflict, right, in the Carter administration. And the EPA ultimately raised the number to 0.15 parts per million, which angered this this group on the grounds that the EPA could not consider costs under the Clean Air Act as it was written. Could you tell us the story of the Clean Air Act? Because I think it really has this kind of earlier style versus the the style that uh, came to dominate uh, regulatory policy in the executive branch. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So environmental policy is one area that the book looks at a fair, a fair bit. And, you know, in the story in environmental policy, you know, the the sort of the background here is that at the time that the Clean Air and Water Acts passed, right, in 1970, 1972, they are, the economic style is already kind of on the rise in a lot of places, but it really doesn't influence these environmental policy, this early environmental policy legislation. And so, they are really couched in kind of these ideas about absolutes and we're just going to have, you know, we're going to protect human health and it's sort of a, a right, you know, we're not concerned about costs. And a lot of that was explicit that those bills were written not to consider costs, partly on the theory that as soon as you introduce costs, that it would open the door for, you know, for the, for the regulated actors to try to, to, to weaken the, the legislation, um, which is pretty much, you know, exactly what, what happened, right? <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, so the story of the 70s in a lot of ways is about the story of trying to expand cost-benefit analysis of regulation where, you know, at some level, at least you're going to take costs into account and, you know, you're only going to regulate up to the point that it makes economic sense. You know, so one set of people who were advocating for this, you know, these sort of, like I said, center-left economists, um, you know, it's kind of happening across different administrations. The folks that you're talking about, this is in the Carter administration. And so they're, you know, Carter appointees and, and the people that they hired uh, who really think that, you know, we need more cost-effectiveness analysis to make sure that we are not over-regulating, right? And so there are people who want to have environmental standards, you know, they believe the government should be involved in this, but they want to do it as cost-effectively as possible. But what ends up happening, uh, and you see this in, in a number of different you know, kind of historical moments, is that they end up finding themselves allied with industry, you know, who also wants cost-benefit analysis, but for very different sets of reasons, right? They just want less regulation and they see cost-benefit analysis as a tool for, for getting that. So if they can just convince everybody that they need to weigh costs, then they have a lot of resources. They can spend a lot of time and energy providing lots of data on how much this is costing them. Uh, you know, the EPA isn't necessarily quite as good at, at, at measuring the benefits yet at this point in time. And so, you know, so they figured the impact is going to be to reduce regulation. And so what you end up seeing is this battle between these different, you know, actors in this regulatory space where the petroleum industry wants very high levels of emissions permitted. Uh, the economists want something that's, that's fairly high relative to what the standard is. Air Office of the EPA, which is kind of the most pro-environmental part of the EPA is saying we should keep this really low. And the administrator ends up coming up with something that's sort of like a little bit of a compromise position. But so they're all arguing for these different these different numbers. But where this where this this point that you're mentioning about about cost effectiveness comes in is that you know the EPA originally is saying, okay, we want to um, you know our, our job, you know, we're we're legislatively required to protect human health with an adequate margin of safety. So we're going to look at people who are in the 99th percentile of uh, sensitivity to ozone, and we want to make sure they're protected. So, yeah, we know we can't protect every last single individual, but if we can protect 99% of the people, that's where we're going to set the cutoff. The economists say, well, that is not a great way to look at it because that doesn't take cost into account at all. And we don't know, you know, if protecting those last people is costing just a little bit extra or if it's costing a ton extra, and the way that we should really be thinking about it is where is the point at which the cost of protecting another person starts to increase really quickly, right? And it's and it's that point at which the marginal cost goes up rapidly. That's where we should put the cutoff. And so they have different different ways of thinking about the problem. But what ends up happening is that because of the way the original legislation was written, that it really did say that you couldn't take costs into account. You know, although there was some compromise the final position ended up being closer to the EPA's position than to the position that, that the economists were advocating for. And in fact, after this whole debate was done, uh, Senator uh, Ed Muskie, who, you know, was one of the authors of the original legislation, uh, kind of hauled them in and made them made them testify before uh, his, his congressional subcommittee and said, you know, you're not allowed to consider costs. That's like in the legislation. But so this this idea of how do we think about costs and how central do we make cost to our decision making, you know, has been this really important site of, of political contestation. Oh, and, and over the years, you know, the, we've, we've been more and more in that direction in terms of thinking about regulatory decisions. I mean, this ozone example is great. There are lots of other examples in the book. I'm thinking about cotton dust, which is something I've not thought about. <laughs> I live in the region of Texas where there's <laughs> a lot of cotton grown here. Um, and I'm not even sure the context where there would be cotton dust. But one of the one of the uh, stories in in the in the book is about how polluters uh, industry wanted to have their uh, pollution not counted at the site of the production of that pollution, but rather bundled all together and then kind of um, sort of put into a market of its own. So the whole idea of like cap and trade. Um, the whole idea of saying, well, you know, if I reduce pollution 
uh, emissions in uh, place A, can that offset some of my pollution in place B? You know, because of course it's all one environment, right? And so does it matter whether I take the pollution out of A or B? If I take it out of A, it's going to cost me a lot less than if I take it out of B versus the original regulations were measuring pollution at the point of production. So if you have a factory in Abilene, you have one in, in Fort Worth, you can't count them as the same place. You've got to count yeah. them as different as different places. And this is this is an example of sort of the way that um, this this style of thinking sort of chips away at regulatory standards uh, as you know the economistic style of thinking like gets you know incorporated into into practice that, am I reading that right yeah yeah and i think right like i mean i always feel like i have to like defend the, the economic way of thinking about it a little bit when i have, have these conversations because like you know i think the logic it makes sense to like understand the logic on on its own terms right that what they, you know, so say you're trying to cap pollution at a certain amount and you're telling companies that they have to, that they have to limit their pollution, you know, keep it below a certain amount. Well, you know, there may be like from the economic perspective, you know, there may be places where it costs a ton to make that change. And there may be places where it's very inexpensive to cost to make that change. Um, and if you are right, like the places that, that, that where it's not very expensive to make the change, you know, those are the low hanging fruit. And so you want to encourage the change to happen where it doesn't cost anybody very much and not just require uh, the lower level, you know, the lower level pollution everywhere, even where it might be very, very expensive because it's just not economically sensible. And so, you know, so this part that you're talking about of initially this, this idea that, okay, well, companies can kind of average out or trade off, uh, the amount they're polluting across different sites so that, you know, maybe they can cut their pollution in one smokestack to you know 50% of what the acceptable level is, but another place that's over the line where it would be really expensive to reduce it, they can, you know, not, not reduce it there and have the extra reduction that they did uh, sort of, sort of count towards uh, their overall, you know, their, their overall goal that they're supposed to achieve. That was actually sort of the seed of this idea of, of emissions trading, right, which which eventually became cap and trade, because once you're thinking about doing that, you know, then it's a relatively short step to thinking, um, OK, well, if we are going to let companies trade off among different locations, you know, within their own uh, factories or production sites, you know, why don't why not let them trade among each, among, amongst themselves? Right. Uh, if this company can make its reductions really cheaply. Uh, maybe it wants to make some extra ones and maybe some other company that has trouble making those reductions can pay it to do so. Um, and, you know, I mean, so from an economic perspective, this is a win-win. Uh, you are still achieving the reduction goals, but you're doing it in a more cost-effective way. And, and, and I think, you know, there's certainly, right, there have been cases where this has worked and worked really well. I mean, it does, it overlooks some things. And I think the things that it tends to overlook are the the politics of all this that it is um you know for 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 one thing uh if you require places to meet certain emissions reductions across the board some of them are going to do even better than that and so you know you tend to uh your average reduction tends to be actually a little a little better than it is if you kind of um uh say well you just have to reduce enough that all your pollution averages out across uh different locations it also tends to underestimate both like the political difficulty of implementing these systems and then actually the technical challenges around making them workable. You know, so in the US context, the the first big cap and trade system, you know, the first really large one was the acid rain program, which turned out to be very effective and, you know, and was seen as as being a model for the rest of the world. And and it did it did do a pretty good job of what it what it set out to do. But it also became kind of the assumption of that's what our model should be for addressing climate change. And so far to date, you know, there have been a number of places that have tried cap and trade models. You know, the EU has done this, California has done this, and they have not been great at reducing emissions overall because it turns out it's very hard to to muster the political will, for example, to set the the permit level low enough that it actually makes any difference. So there's all these other kinds of challenges that, you know, that if you're if you're too focused on just this is like the logically sensible, clean, efficient way of solving this problem, 
you know, that, that can get too, too attached to that and unwilling to consider other kinds of solutions that may be less elegant, but that might be more realistic or more workable in some way. I think the other thing that your book mentions on environmental regulation and pollution specifically is that how, how these these um, policies begat really the environmental justice movement and, and the uh, environmental and the idea of environmental racism or the, the movement to fight environmental racism. I mean, you can imagine and, you know, so I live in Texas and along the Gulf Coast from east of Houston, from Houston to to almost new, to Lake Charles, at least um, there are a bunch of petrochemical industry and affiliated, you know, factories and things. That yeah. place is is very bad. Um, there are lots of negative, you know, externalities, as the economists would say, um, that come from citing so many uh, refineries in the same in the same place. Um, and you can imagine that maybe some of those uh, sites are not as um, environmentally responsible as they could be because the same companies have facilities elsewhere that they've traded off. Yeah. No. And this is a great point, right? Like that's another, another, another consequence that, you know, advocates of this approach tend not to address very well is if you want to think about, well, we're going to allow our pollution to be placed in the, in, in the places where it is most efficient to do so. Well, often what that means where it's most efficient to do so is in the places where it has least cost to the company of doing so. And often that means in places that are, are poor, in places that can't object to it, in places where land is cheap. And, you know, and we know, obviously, that tends to be in racialized communities, it's in countries that are less wealthy, you know, and, and those kinds of impacts, those sort of distributive impacts are, you know, they're, they're really simply not accounted for uh, within this framework. Um, and so I'm going to, I might be able to remember the details exactly, but um, Larry Summers, who people love to, you know, <laughs> take to task, had this um, terrible memo he wrote in like 1990 that was, uh, uh, it was, um, you know, perhaps tongue in cheek, but also really accurate that, you know, that where it, that it makes sense to send all our pollution to the poorest parts of the world, because that's the places where it's cheapest to go. Uh, and so that's the efficient solution is for, um, you know, because it's more costly to have it be here in the US, it's better to send it somewhere where it's not going to be very expensive to get rid of, uh, which, of course, uh, you know, from a justice or human rights perspective is, uh, you know, something you think about very differently, right? Oh, Larry Summers. Well, oh, Larry he, Summers. Said, <laughs> he said a lot of things over the years that we so many have things. Time. Yeah, <laughs> we don't have time to get into. Un- unfortunately, I do think you know you you mentioned earlier political, and one of the one of the perceived benefits of the economic style and an argument for its use was that it was seen as non political or kind of value neutral, right? It's sort of like the the if we if we can clarify, you know, which approach makes the most financial sense or is most efficient economically in terms of allocation of our resources, then you know we can sidestep any questions about whether or not what we're doing, you know, is the best thing to do in the in the first place right, right? so sort of leaving the political political stuff to the politicians right. and leaving the implementation to the administration and the bureaucracy so to speak yeah because there were i mean for a lot of people this was very explicit that it was about separating the means from the end right so you know we'll let the politicians set the end that's not our job you know they tell us what we're trying to achieve and then we're just going to figure out the most cost effective way to get there but i think you know what that really I mean, I think that, that that overlooks a number of things. I mean, one is just that efficiency, it, it sort of starts from the assumption that efficiency is a neutrally good thing, right? Which on the one hand, right, nobody's going to advocate anti-efficiency for its own sake. Nobody, you know, you, you don't just like want things to be, nobody says being less efficient is inherently better, but efficiency is something that's often in tension with other values. And so, you know, sometimes like with the, social policy stuff, the value of something like universalism, where the most efficient policy might be one that is means tested or that only goes to a subset of people. But you might want universalism either because you want it for you know value based reasons, or for political reasons that that universalism can create a constituency for policies that then 
defends them, which is like what happened with social security. Um, larger point is, is just that, you know, that efficiency is not the only measure of what makes a good policy. And so just sort of assuming, oh, well, as long as you know what your goal is, just figuring the most efficient way to get there is necessarily the best way to get there. Yeah, well, yes, it may be, it may be good to have policy that's more efficient, but sometimes that's in conflict with other things that you want. And so it's important to think of efficiency as, you know, as one competing value among multiple competing values and not as just some kind of neutral measure of what makes for good policy. And while reading this book, I kept thinking about Hillary Clinton. <laughs> just because of her reputation as someone who knew policy really well and was mm-hmm. very good at designing technolog- technocratically efficient, that's not even a term, but technocratic kind of solutions <laughs> to to programs that, that to me like completely fit this style almost everything that in her pres in her candidacy yeah. that she proposed had some was not universal we can't do medicare for all because high income people can pay for mm-hmm. their own health insurance or many people are already getting insurance from their uh, their employer right. or we can't do that because unions bargained for health insurance as part of their you know compensation package when you know GM or whatever a company couldn't or wouldn't do do raises or something or something like that, um, which is a real change as you document in this in this book from the Great Society programs and the New Deal programs, really the New Deal programs of um, you know FDR, this really transformational president who himself was doing these things to save off you know um, in some ways. Um, even more um, progressive, you know, ideas, right? The New Deal was not, um, the New Deal itself was a compromise, right? With more socialist elements uh, in, mm-hmm. that were active during during the time. So I don't know, did you, did you think about Hillary Clinton when you were writing, the, writing this as, a, as kind of an avatar of, of technocratic economics? Yeah, I mean, I think... <laughs> I thought about Obama a lot, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, like I kind of open with Obama and like, I mean, if he he's the one, I mean, it works for Hillary too, right? It's the whole, I mean, pretty much all prominent democratic politicians of the 90s, 2000s and 2010s until, you know, there, there's some people who, who pull away from this now, right? But um, a lot of what I thought of were the politics of Obama where you had an administration that came in, um, you know, controlled, controlled the House and the Senate at the beginning, um, was very elected on a, on a progressive wave, was kind of had this whole hope and change rhetoric, right? Kind of came in with big promises and with a lot of political power. And admittedly, you know, at the, in the middle of a financial crisis, there were, there, were, there were big things happening on the table. But still, you know, one of the things that, that really struck me was that the Obama administration, its starting point was with these kinds of solutions, right? I mean, there was never... There's never like a really serious conversation about should we just advocate for universal health care and then, you know, have that as a starting position and then say, OK, well, you know, if we can't get that, then, then what's our next best solution? Um, you know, the starting point is really like what it makes sense to do is have a system that is, you know, that is means tested, that kind of uses market exchanges to try to keep costs down. You know, you can debate, well, would that, you know, would was that politically realistic to, to start with something bigger? You know, there's all kinds of interests. I don't mean to suggest that had they just said, oh, universal health care would have been nice, that that would have necessarily been achievable. But like what really struck me is, you know, nobody's even thinking about it. Right. Like it's just not it's not seen as realistic or reasonable or even desirable. Right. To achieve. You know, the assumption at this point is just this is not how we should be thinking about policymaking. The appropriate way to think about progressive policymaking is through this lens of how do we design cost effective policies that kind of harness markets for, for cost control. And, you know, and that's a very different place than we were a couple of decades ago. Ted Kennedy in 1970 campaigned on national health insurance for everybody with no cost sharing. And that was kind of the democratic position until, you know, through most of the 1970s. Yeah. I mean, you know, the big innovation right in uh, the Affordable Care Act is the marketplaces, right? So each, each state would run an exchange, which is a marketplace, right? Where, where insurance companies will compete for your business in these tiered kinds of plans. 
I mean, we, we have uh, several options at my employer and it's maddening and I'm a medical sociologist. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you can see, right, there's some places where it kind of worked and other places where it didn't work so well. I mean, if I'm remembering right, like it didn't work very well in New York because there were like too many options and, and people didn't have, people weren't very able to distinguish among all these options. It worked a little better in California because it was a more limited set and, right, but so there were there were all these kind of institutional details of how it actually played out that um, meant that sometimes this was a strategy that accomplished what it set out to do. Sometimes it didn't work well at all, um, but, you know, it varied a lot, right? It varied a lot depending on exactly what the details were of, of uh, you know, the specific uh, state and the specific, specific details of the design. Well, another example of choice, right? Allowing states to set their own parameters and uh, within a broad, a broad set of, of constraints. Um, I did want to get, since we're on politics, uh, I thought mm-hmm. towards the end of the book, you have this fascinating section on how it was really the Democratic Party that was all in on the economic style of thinking for regulation and public policy across domains. But interestingly, it's Reagan who is one of the more inconsistent users of this uh, this style. And so yeah. when it suited Reagan's purposes, he was all in on cost-benefit analysis and you know, using the most efficient means to do things like limit social welfare spending. Uh, but in mm-hmm. other cases, not, not so much. Um, can you, can you help us understand why, why that was? And, you know, why, why is it the Democrats are, are way more wedded to this style than Republicans, do you think? Yeah, I, I've thought about this a lot and I'm still not sure I have a, have a, have a full answer. From Carter on pretty much democratic policymakers tend to be pretty committed to the economic style as a broad way of thinking about policymaking. Reagan uses it strategically. He he advances it where he thinks it's going to achieve his existing political goals. He gets rid of it where it seems like it's going to run into conflict with them. And that's kind of a divergence that you see continuing to happen. I think the best explanation I've got right now is that some of it is just about Democrats and kind of like the the faith in expertise, I think, is tied up with faith in the idea that states can actually do things, right? Like, so it's kind of part and parcel of, you know, if you don't think that the state is doing anything useful, then like, you don't need experts because the point is not, the point is not to make it run better, to make it work better. The point is just that it's, you know, you don't believe the state is a positive influence on the world. And so you just want less of it. So yeah, so there's no reason to be committed to this vision of expertise. But if, you're, if your underlying worldview is, you know, we believe that the state has the ability to have positive effects on people's lives and that we should, you know, use it in order to achieve those, then uh, you know, that tends to go hand in hand with some kind of faith in, in expertise. And I think this has kind of historically been the case, right? It hasn't always been economists. It's kind of looked different ways in different historical moments. But this faith in experts, I think, is very closely tied to this faith in in the power of the state. And so that's not in the book, but that's, that's kind of my best uh, my best take on like why there's this divergence. No, I think it makes it makes total sense. I mean, you tell the story about how you know McNamara's whiz kids are brought into the government. President Kennedy is very interested in using uh, and getting advice from from experts, not only economists, but largely economists, uh, yeah. economists, um, and that I, I would, well, how I read your Reagan section is is that, you know, if your goal is to either shrink government, you know, because you know Reagan famously said government is the problem, not the solution, something like that, you know, then mm-hmm. it's just about having the government do what you want regardless of whether it's efficient or not, you know, economically efficient or not. So if you want to uh, make life harder for poor people in right. by limiting social welfare spending and so forth, because you don't want dependence, don't, don't want to favor dependence or foster so-called dependence, then you're going to do that. Even if there are other costs borne by other actors, right? So if you reduce housing subsidies, then people are going to lose their homes. They're going to, you know, they're going to need other kinds of services. The mm-hmm. need for housing doesn't go away, you know, just because you're homeless. So I think you're right. You know, the, the point about just bending the government to your will in absence of the sense that it's there to do helpful things for people. Yeah, I mean, 
that's certainly right. Like there are people on the left who are not starting from that position of we need to think about, we need to take this particular approach to thinking about how to solve problems. You know, we need to start from this kind of economic reasoning. But this is where you have this kind of repeated alliance that happens between the more economically oriented wing of the Democratic Party and the center right, I guess, basically, right? And so, and so this is something else you see a number of times. I mean, for example, um, you know, during the, the Nixon administration at the time where you did have this debate over national health insurance, you know, um, uh, you know, what you had was a left wing of the party that was saying, yes, national health insurance, no means testing, no cost sharing. Nixon felt he had to respond um, and ended up developing a policy of his own you know, that was partly written by some of these liberal technocrats who, uh, you know, who did very much see themselves as liberal, but who thought universal health insurance, national health insurance was not a very good idea because it was not going to be cost effective. And so, you know, so they help him to design a proposal that looked surprisingly, you know, a little bit like Obamacare, right? It was going to retain some element of the employer system, but if you were unemployed or if your income was below a certain level, you would have access to government-sponsored health insurance, but there would also be more cost-sharing involved. And, you know, so liberal economists thought this is a good way to get to national health insurance. Nixon got embroiled in Watergate. We did not ultimately get any kind of national uh, health, health program at that time. You know, but it's another one of these examples where the folks who are committed to this way of thinking about problems find themselves more allied with the center right than they do with the you know the left wing of the of the democrats yeah the, i mean one question is you know is that a more effective way of getting things passed you know it's not even getting things passed it's getting things implemented i mean i think there there is a difference though between and we have to keep this in mind between like sort of advocating for things right in terms of like what policy do we want to see passed perhaps and then you know the actual question of how do we design right. policies right. and programs and procedures to make sure those things are actually getting getting accomplished. And so for those of us who are interested in electoral politics and policy uh, proposals, we might wonder why aren't there, why aren't more, more folks on the, on, on the left, for example, are advocating for universal, universal programs. And maybe part of the reason why is that the economic style prevents those kinds of policies from getting a, a full hearing. Although I think some of that is changing, right? When with the talk about Medicare for all and student loan debt forgiveness and other kinds of other policies that are a universal. I yeah. mean, you know, Cory Booker had the baby bonds idea, mm-hmm. and that that was or like the Green New Deal, that, you know, right? That wouldn't those those aren't means tested by um, by any means. I think I mean you know I think this is some of how politics changes in the long run, right? Is that like this kind of stuff? Ultimately, the experts do follow the politicians to some extent, and so once you start to have, you know, social movements that are producing a stronger left and that are getting people elected, or you know, at least serious have serious candidacy of people who are are actually on the left, you know, those folks are going to be willing to advocate for a different set of solutions that aren't necessarily going to look like this. And they tend to call in different sets of experts and, you know, they're not advocating for the same old things. And those, those things are really getting a hearing now in the way that they weren't before. I do think that they still run into problems. Part of the story of the book is, right, how this way of thinking really becomes embedded in the bureaucracy, that it becomes just, you know, it's in all the agencies, it's in the think tanks. And so I think even these ambitious proposals do tend to get sucked into this machinery that has to actually turn them into actual policy proposals, you know, pieces of legislation or whatever. Um, and they do still tend to run into people who, who understand the world in this way and who tend to push them in that direction. Right. And I think you see this with some of the new, with the green new deal stuff. You know, I think you see this with the student loan stuff, right. That movement for student loan cancellation came from this very activist place, you know, and it came from people who were saying, this is, morally wrong. This is a bad thing we're doing. People shouldn't be burdened with this debt and we should we should cancel it. it. And so they're the ones who put it on the table, like an idea that was unthinkable a few years ago. But as it as it moves into policy spaces, you know, it gets sucked into this debate that is you know, kind of an economic debate over is this regressive, right? Who is it? Who's it benefiting? You know, even the people who are arguing for cancellation kind of have to do it in those terms. And so then they say, okay, well, look at the racial disparities, right? So 
we're looking at, at, at who is it actually impacting and how much and how long is it taking to, them to pay it off? You know, so as you move from those activist spaces where you can make these big moral claims into actual policymaking spaces, you, you have to engage with that, right? You, you can't just say, oh, we're just going to make moral claims and wave our hands and hope that it all turns out okay. So, you know, that's that's the question of how do you how do you remain true to that while also recognizing that this is the the way that the world of policy works? Well, I think your book also makes the great point about so you talk about policymakers like where are who are these people and where they're coming from with the expansion of the great society, the invention of new departments, new cabinet level departments, you get a need for basically people to staff these organizations, not only in Washington, but all across the country. And so this is where public policy schools or schools of public affairs kind of come in. And also the law and economics movement that that trains lawyers who work in these agencies to think in these microeconomic ways. So the practical sort of socialization of the folks who are working in these in these um, agencies is along these along these microeconomic economic economic um, style of thinking lines such that it does become kind of common sense to take a big idea like student debt cancellation and filter it through the okay how are we going to do this for as little cost as possible um, and make sure it's micro targeted to exactly the people it's going to help the most and not a single person gets a benefit they would not be otherwise entitled to. Yeah. And, you know, when I've had conversations with people who have policy degrees, I mean, they very much recognize this. They're like, oh, yeah, this is like totally like how I was taught to, you know, this is what your core classes teach you is that this is the right way of thinking about these problems. And you know, that's what you're what you're learning. Yeah, I do think it's, again, that there's a lot of movement and change going on right now, you know, from my conversations with folks who teach in policy schools, there, um, there's a lot of demand from students to think differently. You know, I think master's students, right? Not just not just undergraduates, but you know, people who are attending policy schools right now are not content with this as the only way of of thinking about policy problems, and are asking for things that are bigger and bolder and that kind of go outside of this box. And so I think that those those schools are, yeah, being driven to respond to it to some degree. And sometimes that may take the form of, of who they're hiring and hiring people from different different kinds of, you know, disciplines or with different orientations. But, you know, sometimes it's what classes they're teaching, you know, that they are being pushed to deal more explicitly with the values and ethics questions that, uh, you know, kind of a cost-effectiveness approach sort of brackets and sets aside. So, yeah, so I think there's definitely things are changing and there's a possibility for more change. It's just going to take a while to play out. Maybe growth industry for the ethicists who uh, who who need jobs like everyone else. Your book was recently <laughs> reviewed in The New Yorker, so congratulations. This is one of those things, if I ever ever write a book, I hope it gets reviewed in The New Yorker. Now, listen, I read the review <laughs> as I you know love to see sociology and sociologists uh, being reviewed in The New Yorker. Your reviewer, however, seems to think that your book bashes economists. And now, I think you've been very complimentary to economists in this in this conversation. I didn't read the book, uh, didn't read the book that way. Uh, you know, if we were journalists, it'd be unfair to not have the New Yorker reviewer respond. But we're not journalists. Uh, you know, when you read that review, like, were you surprised by this uh, by that response? I mean, what what did you think about it? Yeah, I mean. I mean, first, I was just like so delighted there was a review in the New Yorker. Like, it took me a few hours to even care what, what the contents were. Um, yeah, I mean, I was not surprised. I mean, I think I was a little frustrated that it didn't feel like it took the book on its own terms. You know, I think right, the book is critical of like the dominance of economic reasoning within policymaking. And you know, I think if you are somebody who is pretty committed to that idea and the idea that that's the best way to achieve progressive policy goals, it pushes their buttons, right? We've all got these identities that are kind of tied up with our disciplinary affiliations and our teams. And it's it's telling people who see themselves as doing a good thing in the world that you know, maybe there's some consequences of what you're doing. You're not always achieving what it is that you think you're doing. All I can, uh, you know, my interpretation of it is it pushed some buttons. 
Um, he then interpreted the whole thing through that lens and painted a picture of the book as really being very uh, dismissive of, of economics or, or hostile to it in a way that uh, is not really the intent. And I tried to be very careful in the book not to do, you know, I mean, I think part of the reason that, you know, that I've been obsessed with thinking about this stuff for so long is that I do like understand why it's appealing, right? Like it, I, I get it. Like, you know, I see this, I can, I can see wanting to do this, like wanting to try to make policy more rational, more, more cost-effective, right? It's a, it's a very appealing way of thinking about problems. And so part of why it's an appealing topic to me is because I both get the appeal and also think that there's issues with it. Probably still net positive to have a, have a review in the New Yorker, but uh, I perhaps personally would have chosen a different reviewer. That's probably safe to say. I mean, I th- you know, your book reminds me, because it is so clear about the motivations of these economists, who, again, are mostly center left, uh, who believe that government has a significant role to play in improving the lives and health and, you know, flourishing of, of the American people, that you've really, you know, gotten inside that, that motivation and that that practice. I do sociology of science, right? And medicine. And so when I'm dealing with doctors and other healthcare professionals, I don't, you know, I may like them as people and I try to get at their motivations and what they're understanding that they're doing, but it doesn't mean I, I can't criticize like the distributional effects of their practice, right? Or, or the things, the considerations that they're overlooking when maybe they're, maybe they're following what is a standard protocol. You know, we don't critique to just tear people down, you know, we, we, that, that wouldn't be a, that wouldn't be a reasonable thing to try to do. My, my, my hope was that even that, you know, that somebody who was an economist could read this. And even if they did not in the end agree that economics had the effects that I'm saying it would hear that they would recognize the picture that I was, that I was presenting, right. That they would say, oh yes, this is a historical account that seems correct. This is an accurate, you know, representation of what we do and how policy works. And I, I have got that feedback from some people, right? Like that's the feedback that I really value is, you know, I don't agree with you in the end that this is the effect, you know, basically you got this story, right? And, you know, I think that's that's more important to me than uh, somebody who sort of dismisses the whole argument because they see it as trying to do something different than what it's actually trying to do. Well, let's let's talk about uh, non, non-book uh, stuff, stuff, Beth. Um... We're still in the midst of COVID, uh, obviously. Um, it's May of 20, 2022. Well, but um, Month 8 million and uh, whatever. <laughs> yes, uh, two full academic years uh, of, um, of COVID, it seems. Um, what have you been working on recently? Take, take any trips? Want to tell us about travel? Yeah. Um, well, I guess uh, I, I just took my first work trip uh since really before the pandemic. So I went to LA for a workshop for a couple of days ago, which was very strange. And, um, you know, even though obviously I see people on campus and stuff, the idea of just being in an intense space of socialization with other folks for two straight days was a very strange experience. <laughs> and I, I, by 11am each day, I was sort of uh, exhausted of small talk and had to figure out how to continue to say things in response to people. So I, I think uh, definitely still a little bit out of that, out of that uh, habit of going out there and, and, and making chit chat. Yeah, we just returned from um, students and I went to the Pacific Sociological Association annual meeting mm. in uh, April in Sacramento, which is a lovely city um, and just a wonderful time. But it was very strange to be back in conference space, of course, masked and, and all of that. But um but very, but very strange. We'll look forward to Los Angeles and see what happens there. Yes. Yeah, so I'll be going back to Los Angeles uh, in a couple of months. So hopefully this is my warm up run. And uh, by then I will, I will have it down. Um, let's see. Uh, anything, anything else you want to banter about? <laughs> Your eldest is about to graduate high school. Yeah. So that's a, a little bit scary, right? Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, again, like it's, it's, it's uh, COVID has kind of made that all a very strange experience too. So, yeah, we, we, um, we moved to Michigan uh, like the year the pandemic started, right? So six months, six months before. So, uh, you know, my, my eldest has had one year in one school 
you know, a year when COVID started, a year that was basically entirely, you know, till the very end online. And then finally, <laughs> last year of uh, of uh, semi semi normal school. So it's it's maybe not the high school experience that anybody would have would have dreamed of. Um, but nevertheless, here we are. Are are you? Uh... Uh, are you thinking about taking like a college tour? I asked because my twin brother is taking his eldest daughter on a college tour right now yeah. as we speak. We're traveling from Indiana, Indianapolis area, all all across sort of the Pennsylvania and the Northeast. Yeah, so we ended up, we skipped the whole college tour thing really because it would have been last summer and it was still kind of a little sketchier to, to travel. Mm-hmm. But what we are doing is we're doing one last family trip. And so we are taking a Michigan road trip. So, you know, like I said, we've been here now two and a half going on three years and feel like we haven't really left the southeast corner of the state. And so I don't know if you know Michigan at all, but it's a really big state. Right. And so we're going to like take a, take some days and we're going to drive all the way up to the top of the Upper Peninsula and back. And, uh, you know, it's going to be one of these uh, memories that may be very painful in the making, but hopefully everybody will remember for a very long time after we spend so many hours in the car together. That sounds fun. Yeah, so that's that's that our plan for after fun. after school is done. Awesome. Well, uh, the only other pop culture thing in my life is uh, is Moon Knight, the new Marvel series. I've just watched the first two episodes. It's very strange. This is not a recommendation or an endorsement, but if you if you're like me and like to be partially confused and partially um, just intrigued, then I. I, I can quasi recommend it. That's my lukewarm right, recommendation. That is, that is definitely lukewarm. <laughs> Which combines things like ancient Egyptian mythology, Ethan Hawke, and the guy who played Poe Dameron on Star Wars. So if that sounds of interest to people, also sort of hallucinations. Um, but in any, that's a teaser for, for folks who are interested. <laughs> well, I've gone the other direction yeah. and uh, uh, I'm, I'm now in like the land of... Uh, retro tv shows and i've been watching like scrubs which somehow i never saw the first time around and uh you know in some ways it does not age well but um (laughs) but you know sometimes you just need like light fluffy short intervals of entertainment a lot going on in the world and uh it has been filling that niche remarkably well there is a lot going on in the world. Uh, as I said, we're recording in like late May of 2022. Uh, those of you who, when you're listening to this, you remember where we were at uh, at that at that point. Um, you know, there's lots lots going on. You have been listening to the Annex, a sociology podcast from the Queens Podcast Lab at the City University of New York Queens College. Joe Cohen is our fearless leader. Thanks to our producer, Oscar Rosario Caballero, and music by Lena Orsa.